Amen. Thank you, Dwayne. All right. Well, we are in Nehemiah 9, just a few more chapters left in this book. Um, and this uh, Reformation month, this is the month we acknowledge and celebrate and uh, thank God for what he did um, those 500 years ago during the Protestant Reformation when the gospel was recovered. And next week will kind of be the capstone of that is actually we'll get to worship on what's historically considered Reformation Day, October 31st. And uh, we'll be in Nehemiah 10, which is a great uh, chapter to be in on Reformation Day, as the people make a renewed covenant with God to live a reformed life, to live a renewed life, to live a new life after um, their prayer of confession that we're going to consider today. In fact, Martin Luther, um, one of the leading reformers, if not the leading reformer in the Protestant Reformation, opened the Reformation in, on October 31st, 1517, by nailing, as most of you or many of you know, the 95 Theses to the door of the church at Wittenberg, Germany. Now, this was not anything unusual. It was initially designed to spark some debate among the religious community there. This was a very common thing to do. Martin Luther was doing what a lot of people did in those days. It was nothing unique to nail some points to the church door in order to invite some rigorous and substantive debate. And in the very first of those 95 theses reads as follows. Our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, willed that the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. On the surface, that looks a little bleak. Luther seems to be saying that Christians will never be making much progress and so they will always need to be repenting. But of course, that wasn't Luther's point at all. He was saying that repentance is the way in which we make progress in the Christian life. That is how you move forward. Indeed, pervasive, all-of-life repentance is the best sign that we are growing deeply and rapidly into the character of Jesus. And this is what we see in Nehemiah 9. A pervasive, all-of-life repentance take place among the people. As we saw last week, and the weeks prior, this, this particular half of Nehemiah that we're in, which kind of begins in chapter 7, is really focused on building up the people. It shifted away from building up the city walls, which was more of a construction and physical project, and it's moved into building up the people, which is more of a spiritual renewal project. And in chapter 7, we begin seeing what the pathway to that spiritual renewal is going to look like. As Nehemiah reinstated the priority of worship for the people, he placed godly leadership in place both in the temple and in the city and in the practice of what we would call church membership by ensuring that the people who were populating Jerusalem would be people who really worshiped the Lord. Last week in chapter 8, we saw Nehemiah begin his prescription for that renewal. It wasn't just about prioritizing worship and placing leadership and practicing membership. That was all trellis work. That was all organizational work. That was all getting things ready for what really needed to happen, which was God's word being reestablished as the authority in the life of the people. And so we considered the role that biblical preaching had in renewing the people here. But that's not all that takes place. That's just the first part. 
In fact, the, the, this week and next week, we're going to look at the two remaining aspects of this renewal that is taking place. God's word had to be reasserted and reestablished in the community as the supreme authority for their lives, but then that would lead them to acknowledge their sin and to seek God in genuine confession and heartfelt repentance. And that's what we see in this chapter. And then in the final chapter, chapter 10, of this kind of covenant renewal, we will see intentional efforts being made on the part of the people to change their lives in accords with that repentance, not just making the words and mouthing the words, but actually renovating their hearts, renovating their lives, changing their desires, implementing new patterns of obedience by drafting a renewed covenant with God. So those are the three pieces of their covenant renewal. It's reestablishing God's word as central and authoritative. It's confessing their sins. And it's reestablishing a pattern of obedience. Our Lord and Master Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And that's exactly what we see taking place in Nehemiah 9. I think a helpful summary of what repentance is is found in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The question 87 ask the question, what is repentance that leads to life? And I want you to notice the three elements that we're talking about last week, this week, and next week are all contained in this particular statement. So what is repentance that leads to life? Here's the answer. Repentance that leads to life is a saving grace by which a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and awareness of the mercy of God in Christ, was that not what we saw last week, chapter 8? God's word being preached, the people responding with genuine awareness of their sin, turns from it to God with grief and hatred of his sin. That's what we're going to see this morning in chapter 9. Purposing and working constantly for a new obedience. And that's what we're going to see next week in chapter 10. We see these elements of repentance take place in Nehemiah 8 through 10 as the people become aware of their sin and aware of God's mercy, turn from their sin with grief and hatred for their sin, and then propose and work constantly for a new obedience. So this week, we're in the middle chapter, the dark, the dark period of the trilogy, right? Every trilogy of movies has that middle movie that we, that we all see, which is oftentimes our favorite because it's got conflict and darkness and struggle. It's not setting up the story. It's not ending the story, but it's kind of right in the middle. It's the Empire Strikes Back, the Twin Towers, all the dark stuff in the middle. Even Back to the Future Part Two was pretty dark. So what, will we see, what we'll see here is the way in which this repentance begins to work itself out in the people of Israel. We're going to see four aspects of genuine repentance. My sermon title is Getting Real with God, Four Marks of Genuine Repentance. So let's see those four marks as we make our way through chapter 9 this morning. First mark, look up. Repentance means a reckoning with God's holiness. Repentance means a reckoning with God's holiness. Now the first verse tells us that all this big repentance ceremony took place on the 24th day of the month the Israelites assembled. Evidently what was happening is they're handling unfinished business from chapter 8. Remember last week when they first heard Ezra preaching to them, what was their initial response? Grief over their sin. 
And then the leaders had to come to them and say, this is not a day for grief. This is a day for joy. But that didn't mean there wasn't going to be a time for grief. It just wasn't during the festival. It wasn't during that time in which they were celebrating God's deliverance of them. It wasn't during that time when the law of God was being brought to the people again. After the walls had been rebuilt, the city is being repopulated, a covenant is being renewed. All those things are taking place. This is not a time to be sad, but that doesn't mean there's not a time to grieve. And so the unfinished business of chapter 8, verse 9 has moved into chapter 9. And what's remarkable about this is that they first felt the conviction when the law was read on the first day of the month, 24 days before this. A whole three and a half weeks have passed since that initial preaching of Ezra. But they weren't able to shake the conviction they felt. They took care of all that the law required of them, and they gathered 23 days later to deal with their sin that they felt on that day. Have you ever been convicted of your sin at a time when it wasn't convenient to deal with it or even appropriate to deal with it? Maybe it was recently, maybe this week, maybe something happened while you were in a conversation with someone and it just wasn't the right time for you to fall on your face before God and cry out to Him to deal, and deal with your sin in that moment. But if you've felt conviction that you haven't addressed, take care of your unfinished business. Go before the Lord and imitate what they do here. Some of us have unfinished business with God. Some of us have long-standing patterns of sin that we have not dealt with, that we have never gone before God about. And I want to challenge you that God would challenge you this morning to deal with that to go to him with your unfinished business. Go to him with your unconfessed, unresolved sins. While sin doesn't break our real communion with God, it does break our sense of his communion and felt fellowship. And God wants us to deal with that. So if there's something even the Holy Spirit brings to your mind throughout this sermon, or perhaps is bringing to your mind right now, don't waste the opportunity. Even right now, there may be a time where it's appropriate to tune me out and talk to the Lord directly about what's going on in your heart and your life. Sins for which you have long and stubbornly or perhaps unintentionally gone on without confessing to him and acknowledging before him. But repentance does mean a reckoning with God's holiness. And the people recognize that in the first five verses. Notice first of all their expression of humility in verse 1. When the people assemble, they come with fasting and sackcloth and with dirt upon them. Now, these things are all connected with mourning and repentance in the Scriptures. They're a way of communicating humility to God and desperation before God. The people are showing externally what the reality is like internally. They feel dead inside. These are the kinds of things that someone would wear in mourning for a funeral or recognizing that someone had died or maybe that they themselves were sick. They feel that they are in the dust of death and need God, God to breathe upon them again and raise them up to new spiritual life. And so they dress like it. They act like it. Second, you not only see an expression of humility in verse 1, but you see a demonstration of loyalty in verse 2. We get a little understanding of what's happening here from the book of Ezra, which is, I trust as you know from 
prior comments in this sermon series is the companion piece to the book of Nehemiah. In Ezra 6, verses 20 and 21, we read that the priests and the Levites purified themselves and they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles and for their fellow priests and for themselves. And they did that to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. We see them expressing themselves in a way of loyalty to God and by in verse 2, separating themselves from all foreigners and standing and confessing their sin and iniquities of their fathers. So they are communicating that they have a desire to be set apart to God as holy. They're not trying to practice racism here or, or some sort of we're better than you idea. They're separating themselves from idolatry. They're separating themselves from people who commit idolatry in order to confess their sins. And notice not only their sins, but their iniquities of their fathers. They're acknowledging corporate guilt here. They're recognizing that even though they may not be completely guilty of everything the fathers have committed, they are in the position they are in because of sins that their father committed. Their fathers committed in previous days, which sent the people into exile, which led them into Babylon, which eventually led them under Persian rule, which led them to where they are this very day. So they are communicating their loyalty to God. They are communicating that they are fleeing all forms of idolatry. They're showing God by their actions that they're serious about their repentance. If we want God to answer our own prayers, we need to demonstrate that we too are serious about separating ourselves from sin. Proverbs tells us that when we're serious about receiving mercy from God, we not only confess our sin, we renounce our sin. We give it up if we really want God's mercy. And that's what the people are doing here. Thirdly, there's a recognition of authority in verse 3. Notice, and they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and for another quarter of it they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. So in addition to expressing their humility and demonstrating their loyalty, they recognized the authority of God's word. Again, sin is putting ourselves above God's law while obedience is placing ourselves again under God's law. They're recognizing that while they've lived lawlessly, they're now placing themselves under the scrutiny of God and desiring to walk in His ways. Fourthly, they confess their sin, beginning at the end of verse 3. After six hours of sitting under the reading of God's word, they humble themselves further for another six hours and they confess their sins to God. The word of God serves as the catalyst for their confession. God speaks to them through his word and they respond to him with heartfelt prayers of confession. For 12 hours, they alternated respectively standing and bowing as they listened to God's word and lamented their sins in his presence. How seriously they took the confession of sin. We can hardly pray 12 seconds in confession. They prayed 12 hours. Brothers and sisters, there's things we can learn about the seriousness of our repentance. Why are they doing this? Because they're reckoning with a holy God. Holy God doesn't get passing confession. Holy God gets real repentance, real acknowledgement, time spent in humility and loyalty and desperation before Him acknowledging that we have blown it. When we take confession and repentance lightly, it shows we take God lightly. 
It shows we take sin lightly and that we don't take the one that we have offended very seriously. But notice, it doesn't just, it's not all groveling. (laughs) Okay, it's not all beating themselves up, flagging themselves for six hours. We've done that, God. We've done this, God. We've done this. No, there's also, fifthly, an adoration of God in verses 4 and 5. Notice, and on the stairs the Levites stood, and we get some, a list of their names, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Now what were they doing? Notice verse 5. They said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. So they're calling them to praise the Lord, not just confess their sins, but to acknowledge that he is worthy of praise. So they move immediately from confession into adoration to worshiping God for who he is, for what he's done, which will lead them to rehearse his goodness and grace, which characterizes most of the prayer in chapter 9. So the first mark of genuine repentance is a real reckoning with the holiness of God that leads us to acknowledge our sin in a serious way. Not some passing or trifling way, but a serious way that demonstrates that we are serious about our sin. Secondly, we not only look up and reckon with God's holiness, but we look back. Here's a second mark of genuine repentance. We look back. We should use this way. You're not. That's forward, Pastor Mark. That's your back. That's our forward. Let's go this way. They look back and remember God's faithfulness. And this characterizes most of the chapter in verses 6 through 31. The Westminster Catechism that we read on the front end of the sermon describes a true sense of sin as being accompanied by an awareness of God's mercy in Christ. Isn't that interesting? See, you can't get a true sense of sin unless you have an awareness of God's great mercy to you. It's there that the conviction of sin goes deeper. God's mercy, God's grace, God's love, far from diminishing the severity of sin, enhances the severity of sin. Because we've not only sinned against a holy, righteous, and just God, we've sinned against a gracious, merciful, and loving one. Here we see that play out as the people of Israel rehearse God's faithfulness and remember what God has done for them, both as a means of intensifying their sorrow over sin and fostering their hope in the face of sin. It's both. One writer calls this prayer from verses 6 through 31 a redemptive historical summary, the most complete review of the biblical story in the entire Old Testament. They review the Old Testament from verses 6 through 31. Another writer acknowledges that, quote, this is the longest recorded prayer in the Bible outside of the Psalms. Isn't that interesting? So here we find not only the longest recorded summary of the Old Testament, but the longest recorded prayer outside the Psalms. I think it certainly deserves our attention for these next several moments, don't you? Well, we're going to give it some attention. We're going to look at five aspects of God's faithfulness that they remember, first of all. They remember God's grace in election. In verses 6 through 8, they recount creation to the call of Abraham. They recount the first 12 chapters of the book of Genesis. The prayer begins by remembering who God is. 
He alone is God, verse 6. The unique God who is sovereign over all things, sustaining all things, and the source of all things. And this sovereign God, who could have done anything he wanted with anybody he wanted, chose a pagan named Abraham to make a covenant with. He chose a pagan who at that time was not Abraham, father of a multitude, but Abram to be in covenant relationship with him. And verse 7 describes the events in Genesis 11 and 12. And verse, the second half of verse 7 describes the events in Genesis 17 where God ratifies this covenant with Abraham, which is where the people of Israel got their beginning. Verse 8 mentions that Abraham's heart was faithful. So the arrangement of these verses isn't chronological, it's theological. We are being told that Abram was chosen by God's grace... And then he had his name changed, which is actually in Genesis 17, and then was counted righteous by faith, which is back in Genesis 15. And as we've seen by the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the repopulating of the city under Nehemiah's leadership, God is keeping his promise to Abraham. He is filling the city of Jerusalem with Abrahamites, with Israelites, with true descendants, at least physical descendants, of Israel. Abraham. And so in verses 6 through 8, the people recount God's grace in choosing Abram to be in covenant with him out of all the people on the face of the earth. God chose him, and we are descended from this one that God made covenant with. Secondly, in verses 9 through 15, they recount God's grace in redemption. That is, they're recounting the Exodus narrative all the way to Mount Sinai in the middle of the book of Exodus. In verse 9, there's a beautiful word about God seeing the affliction of his people. He hears their cry at the Red Sea. And then the ten plagues come in verse 10. God makes a name for himself. They reflect on the Red Sea account. They reflect on God's miraculous leading of them and his parting of the Red Sea so that they can make it through all the way on dry, dry land before the Egyptian army was drowned. And then in verse 13, they come to Sinai, which is in Exodus 19 and 20. And they recognize what a gift it was to receive a spoken word from God, to receive the law of God, that God gave them as part of that, verse 14, a good gift of Sabbath and God's provision in the wilderness, how he cared for them and carried them all the way. The people are recounting God's care for them in redemption how he heard their cry, how he delivered them from slavery, how he cared for them in the wilderness, how he provided for them in their distress, and how he spoke to them on Mount Sinai, his very law. Thirdly, they recount God's grace in provision in verses 16 through 21. As the people rebelled in the wilderness and were marked by unfaithfulness, they used the language of stiffening their necks, being stubborn, They acted like the calf they were worshiping. They returned to slavery, at least spiritually speaking. And yet, verse 17 says, you were a God ready to forgive. You were a God who was gracious and merciful. And they rehearse that foundational text in Exodus 34. God is slow to anger. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. They rehearse that God is merciful, that God is compassionate, that God is slow to anger. Even when, verse 18, they made a calf and committed blasphemy at the base of Mount Sinai. 
Yet, verses 19 through 25 says that God did not forsake them. God remarkably provided for them. He kept giving them food and drink despite their idolatry. Their feet never swelled. They had no blisters on their feet. They appreciated nothing, yet they lacked nothing. This was God's grace to the people of Israel. They appreciated nothing, and they lacked nothing. God's grace and provision all throughout their time in the wilderness. Then in verse 22, they recount God's grace and possession. That is finally coming to the land that was promised to Abraham that they would possess, the land of Canaan. And the possession of the land, of course, is recorded in the book of Joshua to the conquest. And now they reflect on the fact that they never deserved this inheritance either. This paragraph is about the conquest of the land. God had promised to give them, give them this land according to his covenant with Abraham, and he did! Despite all their unfaithfulness, God showed himself to be a God of grace, of mercy, of compassion, of patience and slowness to anger, and he fulfilled his word according to his promise to Abraham, regardless of how the people behaved. Verse 25 said that God did this in his great goodness. And he gave them everything they could ever want. They were released from slavery. They were provided with good things. They got an an inheritance of a land they didn't earn. But what happened next? Fifthly, God's grace in compassion. Where in verses 26 through 31, we see the book of Judges through the book of Kings recounted again and again in cycles of disobedience, God's mercy, and the warnings of the prophets. They responded to the gift of the land in verse 26 the same way they responded to being freed from Egypt. Rebellion. Verse 26 takes us to the end of Joshua and leads us into Judges and beyond. In light of all of God's goodness, that was their response. To rebel again. We see the sinfulness of sin here. Our sin has taken place in the face of God's expression of goodness. Our sin is defiance, arrogance, stiff-necked, and rebellious. Notice the mercy and rebellion that has gone back and forth beginning at verse 27. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer, and in the time of their suffering they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. They did this to themselves. And they cried out to God for mercy. And instead of God saying, you know what? You did this to yourself. I told you what was going to happen. How often do we as parents speak like that to our children? I told you this was going to happen. And yet, God gives them mercy again. And yet they rebel again. Look at verse 28. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over you. Yet when they returned, they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. Look again at their rebellion in verse 29. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law, yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. 
And then we get more rebellion in verse 30. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Verse 31, nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Rehearsing, rehearsing, rehearsing. The whole Old Testament from verse 6 through 31 with the point, you have been far too kind to us. The whole prayer, basically, aside from the initial confession, is a rehearsal of the kindness of God. Do you include that, brothers and sisters, in your prayers of confession? Do you, or you just go right to what you did and ask God just to go ahead transactionally and wipe it out? Or do you take time to stop and rehearse God's goodness to you from as far back as you can remember? Some of you guys and girls, men and women, I'm talking to young people and older people now, have never known a time where you weren't a recipient of God's mercy. Because you grew up under the sound of the gospel, in a family that believed the gospel, in a church that held to the gospel, with people who were loving you for the sake of the gospel. You've, ne- you've been pursued relentlessly by mercy your entire life. And it would do you well if you've not been converted and led to Christ to give that some thought. To give that some serious time and reflection. But even for those of us who are in the Lord's family, we need to do that as well. Because not only will that give us a deeper sense of sin, it will give us a deeper repentance and a greater resolve to fight sin. There are things that will help you fight sin in God's kindness that God's judgment can never provide. Holiness will not keep you from sin alone. It's God's kindness that leads us to the deepest forms of repentance. The deepest repentance is gospel repentance where you look God in the face and you realize, I have blown it with my Father in heaven who loves me as the apple of his eye, who has never done me wrong, who has only provided for me in ways of gracious and sometimes severe mercy, but always with a view to bringing me closer and keeping me closer to him. And you know what, brothers and sisters? It's not just the right thing to do, it's the honest thing to do. If you want to get honest in confession, you need to spend a lot of time acknowledging what God has done for you by way of compassion, mercy, grace, and forgiveness. And rehearsing that, acknowledging that, not just thanking Him for it, but saying, God, how often have you been my God? How often have you loved me in the face of my sin? I'm sitting here breathing when I don't deserve to be breathing. I'm sitting here living when I don't deserve to be living. I'm on your earth in a way, living for myself in a way that should snuff me out when you've put me on this earth to live as a mirror for your glory. And yet so often I've neglected you, not thought of you, not remembered you, not considered you, not walked with you, not been intentional regarding rehearsing your mercy and grace toward me. We need to do that, brothers and sisters. We need to remember God's faithfulness in our own lives. So not only do we look up as part of genuine repentance, reckoning with God's holiness. And not only do we look back, rehearsing God's faithfulness, two more marks of genuine repentance. We look in. 
that looking up to God's holiness and that looking back, rehearsing God's mercy, should lead us to look in and request God's mercy. And this is exactly what the people do in verses 32 through 37. In verse 32, they begin looking in. Notice verse 32 again. Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, look at this. Let not all the hardship seem little to you that's come upon us. Verse 33. Yet you have been righteous in all this, for you have dealt faithfully and we have dealt wickedly. So notice, they, they look to God and they appeal for mercy, but they acknowledge that everything they've received has been right. They're not faulting God. They're not blaming God for anything. They said, everything we've got, we deserved. And in fact, we've deserved more than we got. But you've withheld that from us because you are a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And now we are requesting that you be that God to us one more time. One more time. The Levites, the leaders of the people, ask God to be merciful again. So in verses 33 through 35, they confess their sin again. They confess God's righteousness. They know that God has not acted wrongly. They have been the wicked ones. Everyone has sinned. God was good to them despite their failure. And yet, look at what, how they describe their current problem in verse 36. Behold, we are slaves this day. In the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves. We are right back where we started. Centuries have passed. And they are right back where they started. Only now, they're spiritual slaves, not in a land that's oppressing them, but in a land that God gave them. They're looking around, and they're realizing, we're slaves in the land that you gave to our fathers. We are slaves to our sin, and there is nothing we can do about it. We are helpless we are hopeless, we are lost. Look at verse 37. And its rich field, that is the field, the fields of the land in which we are now living, back in Jerusalem, goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. We're still under Persian rule. Nehemiah doesn't work for the, for the government of Jerusalem. There is no such thing. There's only Persia. And we are here because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. They're asking God, remember when you heard our cries back in Egypt? We're right there again. Hear us again. Not for our sake, not because we deserve it, but for the sake of your covenant. For the sake of the covenant you made with Abraham, for the sake of the covenant you made with Moses, for the sake of the covenant you made with David, remember us. Remember us. Please show us mercy again. You've heard our cries before. You've heard our distress before. Please hear us again. Fourthly, not only did they look up 
to reckon with God's holiness, look back to rehearse God's faithfulness, look in to request God's mercy, but they look forward to recommit to God's ways. Verse 38, the Levites come after this whole prayer of confession, which has occupied the first 37 verses. The last verse marks a shift. Having rehearsed God's dealings with his rebellious people, they're now prepared to make a new covenant and keep it. We'll look at the contents of what that covenant contains, Lord willing, next week in chapter 10. It involves many holy commitments, but notice they are committed to walking with God once again. What do we leave with from this chapter? Does all this not remind you of a very familiar text to many of us? 2 Chronicles 7.14 If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. Are they doing that? Yes. And pray. Are they doing that? Yes. And seek my face. Are they doing that? Yes. And turn from their wicked ways. Are they committed to doing that? Yes. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. They're resting on those sorts of promises. So let me conclude here with four words of application. First of all, reckoning in prayer means that we don't play games with God. We need to be real in prayer, brothers and sisters. In Nehemiah, we've seen short prayers, and in chapter 9, we get a really long prayer. This is a long one. The length itself says something, too. Their outer appearance says something. Don't allow the verse to pray without ceasing keep you from finding longer periods of time where you get on your face for extended periods of time and cry out in reality to God. Pray until you've prayed, as the old saints used to say. Keep at it. Work at it. Because sometimes, brothers and sisters, we've blown it for so long and so often We need to take the morning off work. Call in a personal day and get alone with God and get real. And talk for hours and hours and hours and pray until you've prayed. When's the last time that happened in your life? It's been too long for me. I'm due. Got to put it on my calendar in the next couple of months. I need to get real with God for a period of time. So busy. So much to do for the Lord. No excuse. Got to be with them. Got to be with them. So we need to do the same. You need to find some time. Now, I realize it's going to be different for all of us, but, but talk to the Lord about that. Don't listen to me. I can't tell you when to do it. But find a time where you're going to carve out a substantial period of time, maybe 15 minutes, maybe 30 minutes, maybe an hour, maybe several days over which you give a concentrated portion of a day. And don't just go into it with yourself and no, no open Bible. Because here's what will happen. If you resolve just to get on your knees and start praying to God, you'll run out of things to say in about 10 minutes. And I think this is why their prayer of confession went on so long. Because it wasn't just them thinking, okay, what can we think of next? What can we think of next? It was, no, notice verse 3 again. They read from the book of the law. 
and they made confession. Maybe we need to do that. Maybe you need to pick a book of the Bible, pick a section of the Psalms, and read it and pray everything that God brings to your mind on every single verse that you read. And let Him talk to you through this Word, and you respond to Him. But brothers and sisters, we need to stop praying these piddly prayer games. And we need to get real with God. Second, remembering in prayer means we rehearse God's ways with us. We need to read the Bible, and we need to pray in light of it. Just in this prayer, we hear of God's mercy, God's faithfulness, God's promises, God's uniqueness, God's creation, God's redemption, God's provision, God's goodness, God's grace, God's patience. All of them here. This prayer is God-centered. It's centered on God, rehearsing who God is, what God has done. How much do our prayers reflect not just what we've done, but what God's done? Do we not need to have as much in our prayers about what God has done as about what we have done or not done? So often our prayers can be so self-centered. We hardly ever talk to God about God. All we do is talk to God about us. Now, there's certainly a great place for that. We see lots of us talk in chapter 9. But it's all intermingled with lots of God talk. It's lots, because this is a relationship. Imagine husband, wife, you sit down with your husband or wife, and you say, I want you to be quiet. I got to talk about me for a little while. No, 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 no. I know you're interested. No, just be quiet. I want to talk. Now, there's times to just say that to your spouse, of course. I just need to talk. Please just listen. We, that's fine. But imagine that was the sole, uh, the sole category of the relationship. It's just one person talking to the other person. The other person never talked back. Never talked back. Be quiet. Be quiet. I'm talking. That's how some of us treat prayer. We never let God talk back to us. Now, I'm not asking you to listen for the mysterious inner whisper of the Lord deep in your soul so you can discern what he's saying to you. That's not what I'm saying. He's already said it. Get in this, let him talk to you, and then respond to him. So we need to let his word shape our words. His character shape our response. His ways shape our interaction with him. Thirdly, requesting in prayer means we're specific, not just throwing out vague statements about sin and forgiveness. We need honesty in prayer. We don't like talking to God about our sin. You know why? We're sinners. Sinners don't like talking about sin. But for prayer to really be real, it has to be honest. While we prefer often to minimize our sin or manage our sin or rename our sin or redefine our sin or shift blame for our sin and are willing to do anything to keep from taking ownership for our sin, we need to acknowledge our sin and be specific. Call it what God calls it. Call it what God calls it. And then fourthly and finally, recommitting in prayer means we aren't content with just confession. We're resolved to walk in repentance. Repentance is not just admitting our sin. It's putting it to death and seeking to live a good life, a different life. Repentance is incomplete if it doesn't include a desire for change that results in some new efforts toward obedience. Not perfection, but new patterns brought about by God's grace, enabled by God's Spirit. There are many versions of false repentance out there. Self-righteousness, where we spend time confessing the sins of others, but never our own sin. Merely confessing, or no real desire for change, just admitting something wrong. 
worldly sorrow, which is being sorry for the situation that our sin produced, but not sorry for the sin itself or the God we've offended through it. Or just religious repentance. We just say, I'm not going to confess it, I'm just going to try to change. That's religious repentance. We never talk to God about it, we just try to be a better person. Now, what will lead us to be a prayerful, confessing people? A real people, an honest people. Our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. Could that not be the theme of this chapter? Our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. That's what will lead you to go to your God. If you go to your God already feeling like you're 10,000 talents in debt, and that you've got to dig yourself out of it by remembering every single sin you've ever committed, God doesn't forgive you on the basis of your confession of sin. God forgives you on the basis of Christ's work for your sin. Your confession is important, but that's not the reason God forgives you. Oh, you confessed it. Okay, well, that makes it, that makes it guilt-free. I can just atone for it that way. You confessed it. No, the atonement comes from the work of Christ, and there's always more mercy in Christ than grace in us, or sin in us. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. So when we go to him, you don't ever have to fear like he's going to push you away. You don't ever have to fear like he's done with you. If anybody should have felt like they had no right to go to God, it's Israel here. They have no business talking to God about anything. Be quiet. That's all you're allowed to do in God's presence. He doesn't want to hear a word from you. He's had it with you, Israel. If he hasn't had it with them, you think he's had it with you? No, he loved you at your worst. He sent Christ to die for you while you were still his enemy. And if you're now reconciled to him, how much more will his grace abound for you? You're a child now. You're in the family. So we, yes, we have great sin to acknowledge, but we have a greater Savior who acknowledges us. The gospel tells us that sin can't ultimately bring us into condemnation. Jesus suffered. He was miserable for our sin. You don't have to cultivate misery on your own. You don't have to make yourself suffer in order to merit forgiveness. You simply receive the forgiveness that's earned by Christ by faith. If we don't believe the work of Christ is sufficient for all our sin, then repentance becomes a traumatic, unnatural, unnatural and horribly threatening thing. <gasps> I've got to repent. But if we believe that Christ is sufficient, then repentance is the most life-giving thing in the world. It's a freeing thing. Only under great duress does a person admit they have sinned when their hope is in their moral goodness. But not so for the Christian. When we hope in Christ's righteousness, not our own, it's not traumatic to admit our weaknesses and lapses and sins. Ironically, those who repent less and less often are often not those who sin less and less often, but those who are trusting Christ less and less often. Because the more accepted and loved we feel in Christ the more and more often we will be repenting. And though, of course, there's always some bitterness in any repentance, in Christ, that ultimately leads to sweetness. Repentance always leads to sweetness. As we see our flaws, failures, and sins, we also see how precious 
electrifying and amazing God's grace really is. And the more aware we are of God's grace and acceptance in Christ, the more we're willing to drop all our denials and self-defenses and admit the true dimensions of our sin. It really is the kindness of God alone that leads us to repentance. And if needed, may he lead us all there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for a chapter on repentance that, that, that is so sweet. A chapter on the heaviness and gravity of sin that gives us hope that you are a God who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and mercy. You're not through with us. You're not done with us. You're not folding your arms up with a scowl in heaven, looking down at us for blowing it one more time. You're calling us, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, even if that weariness was self-imposed, even if that, that heavy ladenness was brought upon by the guilt of your own sin, come to me, come to me, come to me, and I will give you rest. God, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Christ who receives repentant sinners and eats with them. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that coming to you is less like a trial and more like a dinner. It's less like a pity party and more like a gospel party. It's less like wallowing and more like worshiping. Lead us to that place. Draw our hearts close to you. Teach us your ways. Your ways of repentance, your ways of kindness, your ways of abounding mercy for sinners who are so in need, like all of us, of your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray.